everyone. My name is Matt. It's good to, to be with you. Um, we are wrapping up our series, Built Together. We've been exploring some really important aspects of our life together as a church. And today, we are going to end by talking about generosity. And man, the energy coming off you guys right now, it's almost too much. Okay. So I, re <laughs> I realize that there can be tension sometimes around, you know, the church and talks on money. And for some, it raises suspicions, oh, they just want my money. Or for others, you know, maybe some fatigue, like what are they going to ask me to do now? Um, here's what I know. You probably don't want to hear a talk on money. Most pastors, if they're honest, don't want to talk about it either. And so let's just all be miserable together, <laughs> all right? And if you're in a speech class, that's a horrible way to begin a speech. Don't do that. Um, the truth is, I actually, what? I actually talk about money very rarely. Um, and I'm not even saying that's a good thing. I've had actually like pastor mentors of mine be like, Matt, this is an opportunity to help people grow in freedom and joy in this area of generosity. I mean, this is a, if you believe this, this is an incredible invitation and I think there's a lot of truth in that. And to be honest, that's an area I'm, I'm actually trying to grow in as a pastor. I think for me, part of it, um, I am conscious of the fact that I personally benefit from your generosity. Like, I realize where my paycheck comes from. We actually do a lot of other things here besides pay me. But still, I just want to say that because I want you to know that I know that, okay? Part of my hesitance is also theological and how um, sometimes well-meaning preachers um, will handle the Bible and then there's a way to kind of use Old Testament verses and take things out of context and it's like, oh, I didn't know that we were doing the Old Testament law. I didn't know we were still doing that. I thought, so anyway, um, all that said, don't get too excited because we are not off the hook just yet. Okay? What I'm saying is I, I want us to wrestle with this um, really as honestly as, as I know how. And for me, whenever I need, when I need clarity on something, I start with Jesus and like when in doubt, look at Jesus. And I think that's always good advice. And if you've been here for a while, you know that a disciple is someone who, who looks at the life, the practice, the teaching of Jesus, and who then reorders our lives around that, that we want Jesus's vision of the kingdom of God to make its way down to like the ground floor of our lives, our relationships, our priorities, all of it. So what does Jesus have to say about money and generosity? Turns out a lot. Uh, scholars estimate that up to 25% or roughly 25% of what Jesus teaches has something to do at some level with money. <laughs> Can you imagine if you came here and like every fourth Sunday was a sermon on money? We'd probably have fewer people. Yeah. Um, but Jesus knows that, that money is an inescapable part of our, our daily lives because of, of our culture. He also knows that like in every area uh, of our discipleship, we're already formed. We've already been shaped at a soul level by the world around us. And so either we are moving toward Jesus in the area of our finances or we're, 
we're being pulled in other directions, directions that rob us of life and joy. So, Jesus. Uh, he would say these crazy things sometimes around money, uh, like the time he said to the rich young ruler, and he said this so casually, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Like it's the guy's most natural next step, most obvious step in the whole world, just sell everything. I hope he doesn't ask me to do anything like this. Uh, Jesus said things like, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it, it literally is translated happy. Uh, or it could be translated, I just read last night, as to flourish. Like you are blessed, you flourish. Happy is the person who is generous. He said things like, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. God will take care of you. Um, regardless of whether or not you buy into what he says about money, here's one thing for sure. It's hard to deny the positive effects of this perspective in Jesus' life. I mean, you think about it, you never see Jesus anxious about his stuff. You never see him running around stressed about his finances. Uh, he, he lived this stuff, and as a result, he was remarkably content. Here's a person who is remarkably at ease in the world. He's like free as a bird. Now, here's my problem with Jesus. That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Here's my problem with Jesus. But seriously, how am I supposed to apply what Jesus teaches about money when Jesus owned no worldly possessions, didn't have a house, didn't pay rent, he didn't have a family to take care of. He just, he wandered around from place to place, no job that paid like after roughly 30 years old. He wasn't worried about retirement, which shoot, if I knew I was going to be out of here in three years, I, I probably wouldn't worry about that, right, at all. Um, one time in order to pay his taxes, do you know what he did? He pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth. How relatable is that? Right? <laughs> so his, the problem for me is his life, his teaching in this area, it's so Jesus-y, right? Meaning, it's hard to relate to. It seems a little bit unrealistic for my life, my responsibilities in, search, in situation. I think of that philosophical question you hear sometimes, what would you do differently if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? And I, I understand the point of that thought experiment. Well, I do a lot of things differently, like, for example, not pay my bills, I'd probably not do the dishes. I'd, I'd be inclined to stay up way past my bedtime. I do a lot of things that, frankly, would get me in trouble if tomorrow I went ahead and kept on living. So anyway, it creates some tension. I think it's worth mentioning that, that Jesus seems unrelatable to many of us, but do you know who finds Jesus incredibly relatable? Just the vast majority of people around the world throughout human history, living in poverty, struggling to make ends meet. It's actually our privilege that many of us experience that makes Jesus seem so out there. But, th but we should know that's unique for many of us. That that's unique in the scope of human history, our situation. And so I am grateful that we actually have a Savior who is so relatable to the poor, to the marginalized. Again, that's most people. Even if it does cause me some, some discomfort. All that said, I'm actually inclined to think Jesus is right when it comes to money. Do you know why? Because I've discovered him to be right about pretty much everything else. 
Um, I'm sure that, like I know in my head that his moral vision is the right one. It's the good one. That's a, generosity is a good thing. We all want to be more generous. But if I'm honest, and I, I wouldn't say this out loud except for right now to all of you on, in a recording, um, if I'm honest, yes, he's right. Yes, it's good. I just don't know if his like Hakuna Matata approach, is, I don't know if that's always wise, right? As if Jesus being right and smart are two separate things. That would be a sermon for another time. Um, anyway, turn to Luke chapter 11, please, if you have a Bible. Um, as hard as he is to relate to when it comes to money, on the one hand, here's why he's so compelling on the other. Here's why you, you should consider listening to Jesus, and it's this. He has no selfish motives when he talks about this subject, meaning he's not fundraising. He's not trying to build a fancy building. He's not trying to raise funds for a personal Gulfstream jet so that he can do more ministry. In fact... He's not trying to get anything from us at all. Um, Jesus does with money what he does with any controversial subject. He elevates it. So we go, oh, this is about something bigger. Jesus, of course, is always interested in our hearts, in the human heart. He wants our freedom. He wants us to experience abundant life, life to the full, which means we can trust him. What he says here, this isn't a trick. In fact, I find comfort in the fact that Jesus is like the worst salesperson ever. He just says, he says things like this, basically. This is my paraphrase. I know this is going to sound crazy, but here is where life is found. He says it, and then he goes, it's up to you. And then he, he walks away. So Luke chapter 11, we're going to walk through a short teaching on money and generosity, starting in verse 33. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Of course, in the first century, you know this. They didn't just walk in the room and flip on the switch and light and it cost two cents a day or whatever it is. No, it was very expensive. They had these oil lamps. And according to one scholar I read, um, 15 minutes of burning that, 15 minutes of oil was equivalent to like one entire day's wages. So it's very costly to have light. He then says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Uh, the first century Greco-Roman world, they had a different understanding of physiology than we do. And so they didn't think of it as like, these lights are coming into my eye, bouncing around crazy, and then come, whatever it does, and I see. They understood it as light, light comes from within, it's light coming out of my eye that then illuminates and enables me to kind of take it all in. He says, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Now, we read this part about healthy and unhealthy, and to us that sounds strange. The whole thing sounds a bit cryptic. Notice, though, if you're reading along in your Bibles or even on your phone, uh, the NIV, for example, has a footnote by healthy and another footnote by unhealthy. Um, and if you go down to the bottom and you read what it says, it says, the Greek here for healthy implies what? It said, nobody has their Bible. It says, uh, it's fine. It says generous. Healthy means generous. The Greek for unhealthy here implies stingy. 
So this is actually a well-known sort of figure of speech, meaning there are two different ways to look at the world, to view reality. And Jesus says, something within you, within your heart, your being, it determines how you see, how you experience the world around you. And so his question is, do you have a generous, healthy eyes or, or being, or do you see the world through the lens of there's never enough? In our language today, we talk about it like abundance versus scarcity. If you have an abundance mentality, you look out on the world and you see a world of plenty. Because we live at God's generosity, which is incredible, down to the breath that we breathe, all of life then is a gift. And so as a result, you live, if you have healthy, generous eyes, you live from your heart out of gratitude, gratitude to God, and of course, generosity to other people. If you operate, on the other hand, out of a scarcity mentality, that's totally different. You see the world through a lens of shortage. You're consumed by greed because you believe life is a zero-sum game. And you better claw and scratch and fight to get your piece of the pie. And when you do, you've got to protect it at all costs. Two ways of seeing the world. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. It says your view of the world is actually a reflection of the state of your soul. Do you have a healthy, vibrant, alive soul? Or is it shriveled and sick? So his whole point is that generosity actually matters for the people that we're becoming. Verse 36, therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Jesus says, essentially what he's saying, if you get your view of money and generosity right, which is to say your view of God kind of in the right place, then everything else will take care of itself. Now, Luke goes on to illustrate, and this is all kind of conceptual, isn't it? Um, he's now going to get more concrete. And keep in mind, in, in your Bibles, like paragraph breaks, that wasn't in the original. The headings that sometimes they say, this next part is about this, that's not there, meaning this is all kind of one thing. And what happens next flows out of immediately what Jesus has just said about generosity. So look at verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. By the way, Jesus is never one to turn down a meal from a rich person, right? And I intend to follow his example. Okay. <laughs> but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This, by the way, is not about hygiene. This is not what you tell your middle schooler, wash your hands, and then they go pretend, run water, whatever. It takes more time to pretend than to actually wash. This is about ritual cleansing, right? So the, the, the priests at this time, they had rules about how they were to wash and prepare to be ceremonially, ceremonially pure uh, to do their priestly duty. Well, the Pharisees were taking that priestly standard and their goal is to apply that to everybody. And Jesus goes, enough, this is crazy. You're just loading people up with, excuse me, with burdens. Verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed. See how it's connected to the eyes and wickedness. Jesus says, you Pharisees love money. Your eyes, your being is not healthy. Your greed 
comes from within and flows around you, and this is a common theme of Jesus. God is not as interested in our outside behavior as he is in what's coming from our hearts, uh, what's happening in, on the inside. Verse 40, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Now Jesus is going to give his solution to this heart problem. Verse 41, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. This would be one of those things that Jesus says that we don't remember him saying. Right? This is pretty wild if you think about it. That Jesus gives, he says, generosity, not something else, is the solution to this inward heart problem. Be generous and that stuff will take care of itself. I wouldn't have dared to say it like Jesus does. Verse 42, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. This goes back to the commandments in Leviticus to tithe, to essentially give God 10% of your harvest. This is an agrarian economy. Today, we think of it in terms of our salary, most of us. But the Pharisees are reading this command, all these commandments to the extreme. I had to look this up, but mint is pretty small. Can you imagine how meticulous you have to be to, to give one out of 10 of, of every le what, leaves? Uh, he mentions rue, which is basically uh, like this edible weed that wasn't worth very much. Again, they're giving 10% of these weeds they're harvesting. So obviously they have, he's like, you guys have way too much time on your hands. So you give a tenth of everything, including your herbs, but he goes on, you neglect justice and the love of God. You're missing the bigger picture. And I think this is actually an allusion to what Micah says in the Old Testament. Micah says, you think, you think what God is really interested in is your sacrifices of rams, your rivers of olive oil. Remember money or uh, animals and plants were like currency. And then he goes on, he says, no, and he, he gives this summary. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Jesus, I think, is kind of riffing on that. But you neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees are missing the whole point of tithing while tithing to the nth degree. And then Jesus says, in conclusion, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Should have practiced justice and love God without leaving the former, meaning tithing, undone. Now, at first glance, it kind of seems like Jesus' view of tithing is a bit negative. But his point is that you can tithe to the extreme and basically not have heart change. That your heart can even then be full of pride and vanity and a lack of love. It's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians when he says, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. But notice in Luke 11, notice Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't have tithe. His point, and we all know this, with all the spiritual practices or disciplines, whether we're talking about tithing or Sabbath or, or gathering together for corporate worship, it's so easy with these practices to lose sight of the why behind we, what we do. 
Um, all the spiritual disciplines, and we, we've said this a lot, they're a means to an end. And the end is that we would become people of love, that we would become people who mirror God to the world. And so it's not actually about tithing. It's about God wants us to become, from the inside out, people who are by nature generous. And so for Jesus, tithing is the practice it's the way we train. It's the way we move our hearts away from fear and greed and discontentment and injustice and toward a life without lack, to quote the Psalms. Giving, in other words, is Jesus' antidote to this inner heart sickness, this inner dis-ease called greed. It's how we move toward gratitude, compassion, a life of freedom. But for that shift to happen. Our view of God, our view of the world must be lined up with that of Jesus. And here is what I don't want you to miss, and I have it all here on, on notes, but I, I still don't feel like I'm saying it very well, so hang with me. Hopefully this makes sense. When it comes to money and our stuff, we have to start by understanding that Jesus saw the world, saw the whole world, in a fundamentally different way than we're taught, than we've inherited from our culture around us, which means he was starting in a different place entirely. His worldview, his view of God, his understanding of the world, that viewpoint resulted in a totally different understanding of money and therefore a completely different way of living. The problem for us, if we just kind of drop into what Jesus says or teaches or demonstrates about money here and there, and we don't have a better understanding of the worldview, the framework Jesus behind that is operating out of. The problem is if you just kind of drop in, you don't have the same starting point as Jesus. You read what he says and guess what? It makes no sense. It seems like out of touch, counterintuitive, even foolish actually. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time doing things that make no sense. We all do what makes sense to us. That explains a lot, right? Um, my point is, unless we see the world the way Jesus sees it, unless we start where he starts, we can't end up where he ends up. So how did Jesus see the world, and how is that different than, than the way we see it? You think about the world that Jesus was born into. Think about the biblical narrative, the stories that Jesus grew up hearing all the time. Jesus, of course, knew the creation account in Genesis 1. He knew that generosity, and this is their understanding of this story, that generosity is woven into the fabric of the universe, that the world was created by God as an act of generous, self-giving, creative love. You read Genesis 1 and 2, and one of the things you'll notice is that the word gave is repeated over and over. God gave, God gave, God gave. It's like this chorus. It's this refrain. In other words... The world that God created is God's home. We are God's honored guests. It's almost like a hospitality picture that we are portrayed uh, as, as guests. God is the generous host. Well, in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and he says, God isn't who he claims, which means you can't trust him, which means you need to look out for number one. And the temptation there is to redefine good and evil for ourselves. And in Genesis 3, there's this line that I think we overlook sometimes, and it says this, Eve 
here's the verb, took some of the fruit. Even from a literary perspective, it's like, uh uh-oh, because the whole time it's been God gave, God gave, God gave, and then there's this shift in the human heart, our posture, and it says Adam and Eve took. We go from receiving life from a generous provider to taking what we think belongs to, to us. We go from gratefully receiving to greedily taking, and it changes everything. Our whole view of the world changes with that shift. You can see why Jesus spent 25% of his time talking about money. In Genesis 4, which is still very early in the story, already we see the way these two heart postures, it starts to affect everything. You see Abel offering the first fruits of his flock of sheep to God. How many commands have there been at this point to tithe when Abel does this? Zero. God hasn't said anything about it. But there's something already in Abel because of his heart posture that says, God has richly provided for my needs. He's a generous host. Everything I have belongs to him. And so Abel has this impulse out of gratitude to God and as an act of trust. I trust God will provide for me in the future to give to to God first. Versus a scarcity mentality of let me just see if I happen to have anything left. Well, Cain has a completely different posture. He gives to God out of a mindset of scarcity. There's not going to be enough. I've got to hedge my bets. I've got to protect what's mine. I can't give to God out of my, like, first because I don't know what's going to happen to me down the road, and I don't know if I can trust God as my gracious host. In Genesis 5, the effects of this start to ripple out through, through the whole world. In Genesis 5 and on, Cain's view of the world, this diseased mindset of scarcity and greed, selfishness, it just works out from there. It starts wreaking havoc in generation after generation. In Genesis 12, God tries to get things back on track, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you a lot. But the reason that I'm going to do that is so that you, in turn, would be like me and bless those around you. Be generous to others. In Genesis 14, do you know one of the very first things Abraham does after receiving this blessing? Is he gives a tithe through Melchizedek, the high priest at the time. Well, again, where did that come from? This is hundreds of years before there's any mention, any formality around or commandments around tithing. There's something in Abraham's heart, and I would argue it has to do with his view of the world and his understanding of God, that God is generous, and out of gratitude and trust that he's got it, I'm going to give back. You keep reading, and this is a lot longer to actually read all this, but you get to the Torah, finally the actual commandments to tithe, and I don't have time to say all this, but just to, if you read the the scholarship on this... um, there's like a lot of different ties. There's the tithe to the Levites, to the priest, the temple. There are festival ties. There are welfare ties, and it's very complex, but scholars have added all this up, and they've concluded that if you do all the tithes, <clears throat> it's not 10%. It's actually 23.3333333, terminal, repeating. So now we know that. Long story short, they do not become the people God had in mind. 
the people God had demonstrated his incredible generosity and graciousness toward. You know what they do? They become stingy. They squander God's generosity. Eventually, the oppressed become the oppressors. And it's the whole story of the Old Testament. Well, along comes Jesus, born into a world very similar to ours, a world of poverty, greed, corruption. And Jesus, with a different view of the world and what God is like and what's going on around us, with a completely different view, he reminds us, he says things like, you know what? God knows the number of hairs on your head. You can trust him. He says things like, consider the birds of the air. They're not running around stressed about how much they can store for their future, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? You see how he's got a different view of the world. He understands God is the gracious host, that we have nothing to fear. Consider the lilies and how they're clothed in splendor. Will he not take care of you? Jesus sees a world not of scarcity, but of abundance. He trusts our generous host, to provide. He's not stressed about his finances or what's going to happen because he knows who's in control. He can pray, give us today our daily bread because he has this fundamental belief that God is capable and good and willing to do that. That's why I think the question is that he's getting at with which eyes do you have? What is your view of the world? Do you believe you live in a world where God gives? where God is generous? Or do you live in a world where you believe God's holding out? And so because of that, you're on your own. And so because of that, you better take things into your own hands and look out for number one. Are your eyes healthy or unhealthy? Is your fundamental posture one of generous generosity or stinginess? That is why, I think, Jesus keeps doing things to show us that life in the kingdom of God is not a zero-sum game. You think about what he's doing with, uh, when he takes five loaves and two fish, and we think that's a neat party trick or whatever, to feed 5,000 people. And what he actually does is he takes what little he has and he gives thanks. God, thank you for all you've given. And he's trying to show the disciples, he's trying to show us all of this is a gift from God our gracious host. I trust God to provide. And not only, not only does God multiply and make enough for everybody, God's got a sense of humor. He's like with a knowing wink. I'll even make sure you have leftovers, okay? It's amazing. This is what he's getting at, I think, when Jesus says, if your whole body is full of light, it's like a light shining on you. Again, if we get our relationship with money and generosity right, which is to say our re- view of God, God takes care of everything else. Not just that, just in case we're not seeing it, Jesus himself is the flesh and blood embodiment. It's like God just can't stop giving. And we have the person of Jesus. Is why Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave his only son. God is generous. That's who he, who he is. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you, through his poverty, might become rich. Titus 3 talks about the Holy Spirit, 
It says this, whom, Holy Spirit, he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who, it's like this common thing, gives generously because that's who God is. He generously gives his son. He gives us grace. He gives us generously his Holy Spirit. He gives us wisdom when we ask, and the list goes on and on. And then he simply invites us to become like him, to live from that posture toward others. So all this brings us back to is tithing for today. Well, it depends on who you ask, doesn't it? Some would say yes. Others would say no, because like Luke 11, by the way, they'd say it's the only time Jesus mentions tithing at all. So that's kind of an argument from silence. Although, again, if you read what he says, he doesn't overturn tithing. He just says, I want you to add to it the justice that you've been lacking. But if you look at tithing in the context of the rest of the New Testament, um, it raises questions. Like, for, for one, we're not under the Old Testament law. There's no temple. So where do we give this tithe, right? Uh, and again, questions of how much. It's not entirely clear. And so some would push back and say it's not for today. There is a line that gets quoted a lot from 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you could hear that, and there is no mention of tithing of a 10%. And you could read that and think it, it kind of implies this casual do-whatever-you-feel-like approach. And the truth is I feel like tossing God a 20 every once in a while. The problem is when you look at this passage in context and then you go on and read the New Testament as a whole, here is what you find multiple times. People selling land and houses to give to the church and the poor. What you find is people liquidating their inheritance or their 401k to be generous. I think it's possible, actually I think it's likely, that the reason that Paul isn't saying, ah, just kind of whatever, I think he's actually giving this as a corrective, meaning you look around and your neighbor is like, had just sold their house to give the money away. And I, I think Paul is saying, look, don't feel like this is a competition. Don't feel like you have to, to like keep up with everybody else. I think he's simply saying, don't bitterly toss in the offering plate uh, your annual salary just because those around you are doing that. Does that make sense? Now, seen in that light, can you see how the question of is 10% really the New Testament standard? Can you see how that's kind of the wrong question? Like suddenly it's like, I don't think it sounds so much so fun to be a New Testament church anymore. Well, let me say it this way. Quiz question. Do you think if Paul were writing us today, do you think he would have to say, whoa, 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 guys, take it easy, relax, you're on the verge of giving probably even too much? Or do you think perhaps he'd have to challenge us, maybe we're giving too little? This is where the spiritual practice, the discipline of generosity comes in. Again, the goal of all the practices is to have inward heart change. But it's practicing. This is how we train to become like Jesus. And Jesus says, practice generosity. Your heart 
from the inside out will change. So very briefly here as we end, there are a few time-tested practices that people much wiser than me throughout history, um, more mature than me, have landed on and have, you know, come back to. And I'll just say, I'm probably not going to come up with something better. These are practices. They're not rules. They're not laws. Um, What they are is wisdom and an invitation to more freedom and joy. And so if you look back in the context, the history of the the church, uh, the first practice is tithing. That would be giving 10% to your local church. I don't know if you grew up the way I did, probably not, but uh, my parents taught me this, and I'm actually really grateful because even from the time I was a little kid to do this, and so it's just always kind of been in my muscle memory. We get $10, and we had these little piggy banks, except for they weren't pigs, they were bread loaves for some reason, and you take a dollar, put it in the first one, which was giving. Anybody else do this as a kid? No, like two people? Okay. Uh, the sec- you take your second dollar and put it in the save bread thing, and then the, the $8 would be the spend. Do whatever I want. I think that there is a, uh, a, something very helpful about giving as a percentage. And I think what it does for me is it kind of forces me to think about giving first, the idea being all throughout Scripture, first fruits and not leftovers, Again, I want to remind you, before the law was given, people whose hearts were like in a right place with God, they had this impulse to give to him first. Before there was any command. Out of gratitude and as an act of trust, God, I trust you to take care of my future. You can have all kinds of discussions and debates about 10%. And is that the New Testament standard? Um, I was thinking this morning, I give servers at restaurants more than 10%, and I call it a tip. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I think about all God has done and provided and, and even a lot of my wants, not just my needs. My point is, if anything, the New Testament raises the bar on this. So much so that Paul's got to be like, you guys are maybe overdoing it a little bit. Just calm down, okay? The New Testament example is to give intentionally and generously, not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but out of love. That said, if 10% for you is way too much because of debt, that's another thing that's unfortunate in our culture. We're so highly leveraged, and I know sometimes we need that or out of a job or whatever, Um, but it's unfortunate when a need arises and everything in your heart is like, I want to respond in generosity. I want to bless someone, but I've already made these other commitments that I'm definitely on the hook for. But again, if you're here and 10% is too much because of debt, because of poverty, because you don't have a job right now, um, again, this isn't law. This is freedom. Start where you are. Of course, we can also be generous with our time, serving others with our talents. Um, But I think that there is something about money, this is my conviction, that gets at our core like nothing else. I think it's why Jesus says where your treasure is, and he meant money, there your heart will be also. Are you willing to trust God with where you are with? It could be 2%, 3%. When Paul says each should give what you've decided in your heart, the Greek word there is to deliberately determine. It's saying, God, how do you want me to respond to you in this? 
It means I need to determine on purpose, intentionally, in my heart. Is it 2%, 5%, 10%, 25%, whatever. But I'm not going to give based on whim. I'm not going to give based on just kind of what's left over or based on circumstance. So the challenge here is this will require intentionality, probably some sacrifice. You may even have to make changes to your budget. I've been thinking about this a lot and kind of redoing my budget and blah, blah, blah. It is interesting to me, I'm just telling you this from my experience, um, the things that in our budgets that we consider non-negotiable. So I'm kind of going through, I'm like, well, mortgage, non-negotiable, rent, not rent, more, I just said that, mortgage, utilities, gas, like these things, I got to do it. You got to live. It's the way life works. But then I get a few items down on my, on my budget, and I'm like, Netflix, non-negotiable. These various memberships, right? Eating out. Like, it's like suddenly everything on my budget is non-negotiable. The only, thing that's, the only thing that's negotiable is generosity at the very end. And I'm telling you, Jesus had that flip complete. For him, the one non-negotiable was generosity. God will take care of everything else. So I would just encourage you, and I know this is hard and it's challenging, but the time to start is actually now. We all want to be more generous. And if you're like me, we do this thing where we go, well, someday when this and this and this happens, then I'll finally be able to be. And that day never gets here. It never, it never arrives. The more money you make, the harder it is to give away. If you're a college student and you're working a part-time job and you make $500 in a month, boy, writing that check for writing that check, <laughs> I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, for $50, right, that's like, that's a big deal. Well, you go on and you, you get a job and it, it pays more, hopefully that's kind of part of the idea of college, anyway, um, and you're making, say, $5,000 a month, and now you're writing a check for $500, which is the same amount as your entire previous paycheck, and you remember that, it's, it doesn't get easier. Turns out that's true no matter how much money you do or do not make. So start where you are. Start now. No guilt, no shame. There's no pressure. What I'm trying to get us to see is, I think Jesus is saying, can you tap into that inner desire that you have for freedom? God's not trying to get anything from you. It's all already his to begin with. He actually has something for you. It's called freedom. He calls it life to the full. It's leveraging the resources he's given you, entrusted to you, to take care of others, to move the work of his kingdom forward. Second way of kind of practicing this is something we'll call a blessing fund. And the idea is that you set aside a certain number of dollars each month I know people who do this with like cash in an envelope, and this is just to bless people. Uh, for some of you, it's sponsoring um, a child, and we, a bunch of us do that in, in Nicaragua with our partnership. Could be to give to a nonprofit or to, to pay for someone's dinner or help someone with their medical bill or whatever. When it's gone, it's, it's gone. I have a friend who periodically puts in a couple hundred extra dollars, like a couple hundred dollar bills in his wallet. And just goes throughout the week and looks for ways, just kind of open for ways he can bless others. Just looks for needs or the server who's having a horrible day or whatever and just looks for opportunities to bless others. I think that's a beautiful way of practicing that. The third sort of practice in this is what's called a graduated tithe. The idea being is that as you get older, your income 
not always, but tends to go up, um, that, that with that, the percentage that you give could go up. That instead of just doing what everybody around us does, which just automatically raises our standard of living, right, that we raise our standard of giving. This view sees 10% as like the economic floor. So as you make more, it's an invitation to give more. John Wesley, the famous founder of Methodism, he once said, uh, he said, earn all you can so that you can save all you can so that you can, hopefully you can guess, give all you can. When he first said that, he was actually starting out his life and he was committed to living on 28 pounds, British pounds a year, and this was in the 1700s. And because inflation stayed low, he was able to do this his whole life. When he first made that commitment, he made that year 30 pounds. So he had two left over, which is not even 10% to give. When he got to the end of his life, because of his books, um, he was making around 1,400 pounds a year. And yet he continued to live on, on 28 so that he could give the rest uh, and be generous. So that's between you and God. But I think it would be a shame for all, any of us to just automatic, do what everybody does and just keep raising our standard of living. Here's how this, this game works. I said this because I just thought of this in first service, but if you make $50,000 a year, you look at somebody who, who makes 75000 and you go, boy, wouldn't that be great? Think of all the things I could do if I just had, right? You get to 75000 and then you look at the person who makes fifty, and you go, I don't know how they live like that. And then you look at the person who makes 100000 you go, boy, if I could just, you see how this, it just goes on. We just keep raising the whole way up. And then lastly, there is uh, radical gifts. This isn't something you budget for necessarily. It's just like kind of once in a while, significant acts of generosity as God uh, puts in front of us. So to end, if all of this, and here's my whole point, if all of this sounds freaking insane to you, of course it does. This only makes sense, only makes sense if you trust Jesus' vision of the world. If you believe you're living in a different kingdom. God as a good generous father. We're learning to be with him, to become more like him, to do what he did. If that's not your orientation, this, like all of Jesus's ethical teachings, sound crazy. You know, I'm supposed to forgive people who hurt me? That doesn't make any sense. If you're not or love my enemy, it's the same thing with this. But if you believe you live in a world of abundance, that you believe in the provision of God, that he's trustworthy. It frees you up to share, whether you have a lot or a little. Do you fundamentally trust that the generous life is happier, more flourishing than the stingy one? Generosity, it turns out, has very little to do with how much money a person has or doesn't. Having money or not. Having money and possessing a joyful, free, generous spirit are two totally different things. Every step we take toward generosity is a step toward freedom. Generosity deepens our trust in God. It's an act of faith, his provision. Generosity cultivates a spirit of gratitude. Uh, it cultivates an ability to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, a meal, 
enjoying a, a sunset or a walk with a friend. Generosity makes the world a more just place. It allows the gospel, the work of the kingdom to expand, and it sets our hearts free. I'll close with this. Malachi 3.7, this kind of famous passage around this, says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, he says. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And in the famous line, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. As far as I know, it's the only time God says, test me. It says, test me. I dare you. I double dog, double sheep, double camel, double whatever it is they had. Dare you to try it. Put me first and then watch and see what I do in your life. There are ways to misuse this passage. I hope that's clear. Ways to name it and claim it and make it something that it's not. But in light of Jesus, in light of the whole overarching story of Scripture, the invitation of Jesus is this. Test my vision of reality. Why don't you try it? Why don't you give it a try and see what happens? Try it for six months. See what happens in your heart. See if what Jesus teaches is right. I mean, maybe you're going to get way behind and get bitter and angry. That could happen. That's why we're just going to try it. It's an experiment. Or what could happen is you discover that you are more free. You're actually more content, more joyful than you've ever been. And so pay attention to what happens as you move toward generosity. I would, I would bet you are likely to feel more content, more at ease, more grateful, and more joyful. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just challenge each one of us. You'd help us to get down to like the the core fundamentals, uh, the way that we see the world, the way that we understand you. Do we really believe that you are a gracious, generous host? Or have we bought into some lies? Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us our next steps. There's joy here. There's freedom here. Um, That you would just give us the courage to act starting now. And Lord, I pray that as, as we, each, each one of us hopefully are, are willing to move toward more generosity, that in the process, and I, I know our faith is going to be challenged and, and hopefully grow, but in the process, I pray that we would discover more joy, more freedom, more breathing room in our souls, more peace, more contentment. Lord, thank you for your generosity. May we become more like you in this process. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.